is ESP real? The answer that most parapsychologists will give you is ESP happens. We observe it in the lab. So there's this room, and it has padding in it, like for a soundproofing. You go in, and you sit there. It's in an opposite room. You can't hear what's going on there. You're given a blank piece of paper and a pencil. And I was able to draw, like, Christmas tree things, a bird, some snow. How and do you it, remember it coming to you? I could just see it. I saw a bird pop up, and I drew the bird. And I saw like some holly pop up, so I drew that. And I could see snow falling, So and I felt cold. So I followed that, and I put that down. And I wrote down happiness. I wrote down a window because I saw a window appear. And then they came out and said, what did you see? I shared what I saw. And they pulled out a greeting card. And it had a cardinal on it with holly, snow falling, and a window. And I'm like, whoa, I got it right. So then they did another one. And in this room, you're sitting with 20 people. They have a big brown bag and a small object in there. And it's stapled and all sealed up taped. And what you're supposed to do is be able to look into that bag and know what's in there. So just imagine I'm sitting there with my paper and I'm just sketching. Come, huh. bent leg. And I drew a leg that was bent. The ABCs start A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I could hear them and it stopped on M. So I wrote M down and then I saw circles and I just put it all down. And then they took the object out and it was a yellow M&M man with bent legs and arms, with the letter M on his belly. And I was like, damn, you're good. Now, what does that mean? It means there is a phenomenon that occurs that we have no physical explanation for. This has a very substantial effect on all of science. Science has been based on materialism, and now we're talking about something that doesn't seem to have a material effect. This is revolutionary. You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. In this first season, I'm producing this show out of the basement of a building that has a very interesting history. In 1935, the second floor was the site of the Duke Parapsychology Lab, run by J.B. Ryan, who coined the term ESP, or extrasensory perception. Hey, Walter. Hey, how's it going? I decided to ask my colleague, the philosopher Walter Sinote Armstrong, to do one of the earliest and simplest ESP experiments to see if either of us have any ESP abilities. So what happens is you take five cards with five different shapes on it. So I think what you do is you shuffle the cards without showing them to the other person. And then you pick one of them and you look at it without the other person seeing it. And then you focus on that shape and the other person tries to pick up from your mind what shape you are looking at. I'm focusing on a shape. I will go with the cross. Got it. Three right. out of ten, baby. You have, okay. you have the power. 
After the Duke Parapsychology Lab closed in 1965, J.B. Rhine continued his work, eventually moving the Rhine Research Center to the other side of campus. I'm going to take you there now. Slowly through the 80s and 90s, universities let their parapsychology researchers age out and then quietly buried the history. There's a kind of embarrassment to this day that research of this kind had been practiced here and elsewhere. There's a little strip mall here and parked here there's maybe about 12 parking spots and right outside the Ryan Research Center where its new location is. My name is Sally Ryan Feather. I'm the oldest daughter of J.B. and Louisa Ryan. Back in the early 1930s in England, it was sort of a heyday of psychical research. In this country, there was an American branch of that, American psychical research, and there was the beginning of this interest in science coming into these areas. That's what attracted my father. Well, he and my mother both had devoted their life to science. They had both achieved uh, the PhDs in plant physiology. I'm John G. Kruth. I'm the executive director of the Rhine Research Center. Parapsychology is essentially the study of five very specific phenomena. Telepathy, or mind-to-mind communication. Clairvoyance, which is getting information about objects, something in a locked drawer, or something even halfway around the world. Remote viewing is a form of clairvoyance. Precognition, which is getting information through time. Psychokinesis, being able to affect objects like a ball or a pencil. A fifth area of study in parapsychology is survival studies. Near-death experience, out-of-body experiences, communication with spirits, reincarnation, and apparitions and hauntings. There has been over 80 years of ESP research going on. First within the mainstream universities, now more or less at the fringes. The researchers continue to publish new findings of ESP every year, found in lab and controlled settings. They're all people trained professionally in the sciences. Doctors, engineers, psychologists, physicists. What makes them fringe is what they're researching, not how they're researching. And they want to be taken more seriously. When you give something the stamp of science... You give it a kind of legitimacy that few other stamps have today. It's what we call in philosophy epistemic legitimacy. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And giving something the stamp of knowledge has a lot of consequences. It means we can act on it. It means we should make policy around it. And it means that those who disagree with us are just wrong. It's not that all science is knowledge. It's that when you rightfully call something a science, you're saying that it's closer to knowledge than any other form of investigation we have. In the next two weeks, we're going to follow two groups of researchers. One that has been called the control group for science, parapsychologists. And the other is the mainstream human sciences, like psychology, political science, medicine. I want to see if 80 years after J.B. and Louisa Rhine started their lab, we have a good way to figure out what to trust in science and whether it's easy to separate out good science from bad science. I'll give you the answer now. It isn't easy. 
My name is Anita Woodley, and I am a performer of ethnodramas and health disparity shows. I'm also a journalist and columnist for the News and Observer. Anita was a journalist and producer, first at CNN and then at Public Radio. Today, she's a performer and speaker. She's also one of the Rhine Center's high-scoring psychics, so I wanted to hear her story. I would say it was when I was maybe around two or three years old. Most of the activity was at nighttime when no one was there, but I could see all these people in the house. And when I was maybe about five or six, I told my great grandma one time that there's this guy that comes out of this army picture in the room I was in. And he would go in her room and go by her purse and then go in the kitchen. And she said, oh yeah, he visits all the time. And I'm like, you see him too? And she's like, yeah, you're, this is just normal. that We have this gift in this family. And then one night he went behind her little chest um, that she had and picked her purse up, went in the kitchen. And I screamed out, he has your purse because you don't take grandma's purse, right? I learned that because I actually took money out of her purse once to punish her. And so I knew you don't take grandma's purse after I got that whooping. (laughs) And so after that happened, she got up and she didn't get mad at me that I screamed in the middle of the night went in the kitchen and there was her purse sitting. And she said, he's moving stuff again. The word got around in the neighborhood. There's this eight year old girl in apartment two that knows a lot of stuff. And if you talk to her, stuff comes true. And in our neighborhood, it was very impoverished, a lot of drug dealers, a lot of shootings and killings. And I would get paid to tell people what was gonna happen next in their lives. These are the biggest, baddest dudes coming to my house and knock on the door. Uh, Miss Mabel, can I speak to little Miss Anita? Uh Uh-huh. They come in my bedroom. My mom leaves the door open. And I sit there on my bed playing with my dolls and like, okay, what do you want to know? And I'll tell you one guy, his name was Scar. He would pay me to use my phone to call different ladies and stuff like that. This before cell phones. And so I looked at him one day and I told him, you're going to die this week. And he said, come on, baby girl, don't say that, you know, because you know you be knowing stuff. I said, no, you're going to die and you're going to be killed. Someone's going to shoot you while you're trying to get through a gate. That week, Scar was murdered. And that continued to happen. I wouldn't know if someone was being killed in the process of being killed. Usually it comes to me in dreams. They're very vivid. As soon as I fall asleep, boom, I'm somewhere else. My grandma was walking me on my, and I was holding her arm. She disappeared, and we were on 55th Street in Oakland. Next thing you know, a baby's crawling across the road, but its head is detached, and it's saying mama to me. I go into a house. And these guys won't let me out. And they kill someone, but I'm looking through a little slither in a closet. I leave, and there's this blue pickup truck with a license plate. That's the only thing that's very vivid. So I keep repeating it to myself. And I wake up. The dream lasted all of 15 minutes. And I told my mom, someone's going to die. And my mom was like, Nita, don't come in here with that mess. I need you to stop because you scared me. Six in the morning, my mom always watched news. 
Then she comes in my room screaming, get your ass up. How the hell did you see that? A grandmother's dead. Two girls are dead. A baby got shot in the ass. The daughter was on crack and they sprayed the whole house with a gun because they couldn't get their money. And I said, well, we should call the police because I have the license plate number and I know the car. She said, the hell you are? Uh-uh. How your little black ass, that's how she said it, gonna tell the police that you know all this? So she told me not to say anything, kept me home to make sure I didn't. And I didn't know the girls were from my school. It was an 11th and 10th grade girl at my school. So I've decided to go to the funeral. Behind a door that was open about that much was the daughter who should have been killed, but wasn't home. And she was looking through to see the whole funeral, just like I was in the closet. So when it's time to go up and view the bodies, I completely freaked out and I start screaming uncontrollably, Mama, I'm so sorry, Mama, I'm so sorry. And I fell in the casket, like just dove onto the mother and I'm screaming and people are looking confused. That is not her daughter. My cousin brought me back to the pew. She already knew what I told her and it just dissipated. Like it went away and I stopped crying. We went and got some church's chicken and I went home like nothing happened. The license plate number ended up being the license plate number and the car. They caught the people and when they showed the picture and everything, I almost passed the hell out. And that's when I knew I don't want this gift. So my great grandmother told me that God would give it to somebody else and she taught me how to pray it away, she called it. He said, don't worry, he give it to somebody else, you're not ready. And that's what I did and nothing happened for a long time until I had my son. When I started breastfeeding and I had a severe postpartum depression after that because I had preeclampsia and nearly died from that condition. For some reason that opened up a whole thing to where I went from not just knowing but also being able to smell when things were going to happen. I was told to go downtown with a red coat and just stand there and there's someone I'm going to give a message to. I listened, I didn't have anything else to do but make milk, no problem. And so I go down there and stand and I could hear now the voice, it, now things were in voices. People were like, ah, oh, somebody's off their meds. And so I'm standing there and this lady and her husband walks up and I go up to them and said, I have a message for you. I was told to come down here and tell you that you're going to die in 30 days. Then they both start crying and she didn't look sick. These were like normal folks, okay? And she said, um, oh my God. And her husband said, how did you know that? Because we were just told an hour ago at the doctor's office that she's dying. I said, look, man, I don't make this stuff up. Somebody just told me to come tell you. And all I wanted to say is that everything's gonna be okay. The family will be okay. It will not be painful. And I just came here to pray for you and let you know that God loves you. As the postpartum kind of died down and I got that under control, it leveled, but it stayed. And so that's what um, happened. And I moved here to North Carolina and met um, Dr. Diana. 
people at Duke. And she was the one that told me, you don't have postpartum depression anymore. That's been five years. You don't have medic depression. You don't have any of these issues. You have a gift. And that was my second time hearing somebody say that. First great grandma and then this doctor. So on the prescription pad, she wrote, you need to go to the Rhine Research Center. There's other people like you that have these unique gifts. So you can learn how to use them. Have a good day. You heard about two of Anita's tests at the beginning of the show. Those tests at the Rhine Center verified for Anita that she did have psychic abilities and she decided to find a way to control them and use them rather than deny or suppress them. It's one thing to know that you have a hunch or you you think you know stuff. My mama would say, you think you know everything like you got a crystal ball. Turns out if she were alive, I actually do. Um, and so it's it's something what I like is bridging that gap with science. I take it as seriously as having my journalism degree because they have all of these different parameters and things to look at to see, can you guess the next number that's going to roll on the die? It shows that this isn't a fluke. This is something that's happening. Like you're tuned into another frequency and you can use it in your life every day. Epistemic legitimacy. Anita had a lifetime of experience, from childhood all the way to adulthood, of visions and coincidences backed by validation from her family. But it wasn't until after she got to see her results from being tested in a lab setting at the Rhine Center that she became comfortable that her abilities were real. That's the power of the label of science. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Now you can listen to Hi-Fi Nation with the free Radio Public app. It's a great app for finding and following podcasts. And it also has curated podcast playlists from interesting people. They're like mixtapes, but for podcasts. I've created one myself, which you can listen to right now in Radio Public. Just go to radiopublic.com slash hi-fi nation. You can download the app for iPhone or Android, and you can hear the shows that I chose as some of my personal favorites. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. When you live a life like Anita's, there are so many events that confirm for you that you have ESP. And when you also get confirmation in a lab, it's hard to dismiss. But if we're going to give so much legitimacy to the practice of science, we have to know how to separate out good science from bad science. And in a lot of cases, this isn't easy. One view of science, a famous one, that emerged about the time of J.B. Ryan's research, didn't think that science should be in the business of confirming anything. 
My name is Massimo Pigliucci. I'm the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Confirming a theory is too easy. Once you know what you're looking for, you can always find bits and pieces of information that seem to fit with your theory. The problem is, is there a principled way to show that the theory is wrong? A good scientific theory should make not just predictions about what is possible and what is actually factual, but also should have a number of uh, statements about what is not possible, what is not going to happen. Piglucci is talking about the famous falsifiability criteria of the philosopher Karl Popper. Popper had this view that good science is in the business of debunking things, not confirming things. So what makes something a good scientific claim is that we know how to debunk it. If there's no way to know how to debunk it, it isn't science. It doesn't matter how much confirmation you think you have for your view. There are a lot of premonitions out there, and a lot of them come out true. So they all seem to confirm ESP. But do all the premonitions that don't come true show that there is an ESP? Or does that show that ESP isn't perfect, but it's still there? What would count as showing that ESP isn't real? If Popper is right, and falsifiability and falsification is what science should be doing, why doesn't the Rhine Research Center focus on debunking people who claim to be psychics? That, that was a, a policy that J.B., early on, he, he helped debunk a lot of people. You just don't go down that road for lots of reasons. We could start debunking people, and, and I don't know what good it would do in the long run. I think it would just muddy the waters. The term debunker has really bad connotations. It implies a worldview. It implies a presupposition that someone's a fake. Scientists and parapsychologists are scientists. We have to be agnostic in our approach to our work. If we go in with a specific opinion before we start, you know, we're humans. We oftentimes find what we're looking for, whether it's there or not. And so the idea of debunking, not something that parapsychologists are interested in doing. If, for example, someone would come into our lab and try to do some work within our lab and we get no results, that doesn't mean he's not psychic. It means on that day, he did not perform well in the lab. We can make statements saying this person was in the lab and did not have success on this day. It's not 100% of the time. At the same time, we are very interested in promoting people who do have successes within the lab if they're interested. So we do not work as debunkers for a specific reason because we're scientists. It might sound like for ESP researchers, nothing really counts as falsifying ESP, even failures in the lab. That's inconsistent with Popper. For him, theories worth taking seriously are the ones that tell you how to debunk them and then don't get debunked. They're not ones that get debunked, but you always have an excuse for the debunking. John Cruth, though, is actually challenging the idea of science as falsification. Even for Popper, there's this alternative ideal of a scientist as an impartial judge of truth. A scientist comes to their investigation with no pre-established opinions or biases. You're not looking to falsify or verify. You're looking to compare two competing hypotheses, and you're only giving an impartial judgment 
from that experiment. John Crew thinks that everyone who takes this stance should accept that ESP is real because of some very specific experiments. The Gottfeld experiments are essentially a test of general ESP. What it involves is we take two people and we separate them in two different rooms. In one room, we have a person who is considered the receiver. They sit in a very comfortable chair in an isolated environment. Their eyes are covered. Their ears have white noise playing in it. And they speak stream of consciousness about whatever comes to mind. In the other room, we have a second person called the sender. The sender is watching a video or an image of some sort and trying to send information to the receiver in the other room. The Gonsfeld experiment has been going on for over 40 years now. The idea behind it is that if you clear someone of their sensory perceptions, you can heighten their ESP and they read someone else's mind better. You give the sender four different images to look at, and the receiver has to try and read the sender's mind. The way it's set up, you would typically expect people to get about 25%, one out of four targets correct, but people typically get about 32% accuracy, which might not seem like much, but 32% is one out of three instead of one out of four. Because of the number of times it's been replicated, it's a strong demonstration that there is something going on in the Gonsfeld experiment demonstrating general ESP. The Rhine Center was testing whether Anita had ESP. In Gonsfeld, you're trying to find out if people in general have ESP. Across a whole population, if we tested everyone, would we find some ESP in that population? The Gonsfeld experiment clearly exhibits this other model of science. We have two hypotheses, that there is ESP or that there's no ESP in this population. If there's no ESP, we'd see 25%. The data comes in and it's 32% rather than 25. So an impartial judge should conclude that we have some ESP in the population. Here's the other thing to note about parapsychology. The studies that come out positive, the ones parapsychologists cite as the best evidence, always indicate a small effect. What that means is that when individuals exhibit ESP, they always do just a bit better than random guessing. They're right about coin flips 55% of the time rather than 50. A very important concept in the human sciences is the difference between effects and effect sizes. If a drug works, it means people get better from taking it, so it has an effect. But it might be that without the drug, people get better in seven days, and with the drug, people get better in six days. So there is an effect, but it's a small effect. And in parapsychology, the positive results if they're there at all, are always small effects. Small effects are by nature very hard to detect and very hard to distinguish from things that will happen by chance, unless you have a large number of subjects or trials. And parapsychologists claim that that's true in the Gonsfeld experiments. They have a large enough sample over 40 years 
to show that there is an ESP effect. It's just very small. And this brings us to the next part of our story, a second set of experiments that parapsychologists claim make for a landmark study. Only this time, it came from a distinguished mainstream researcher by the name of Daryl Bem. Yeah, when I was a grad student, I was getting a master's degree in developmental psychology from Cornell and took a class that was taught by Daryl Bem. Uh, it was one of the best classes I ever took. Matthew Makel is now a researcher in psychology and education at Duke. He was a PhD student at Cornell about a decade ago. And in the, in the class, he told us the story of how he first got involved in studying parapsychology and ESP and all these things. And it was, he was invited to, I think, Scotland, where these parapsychologists wanted outside researchers to come in and say, evaluate our methods. We're trying to do experimental science, but because it's parapsychology, the world isn't going to believe us. So they wanted external people to come in and say, what are we doing wrong? How could we improve our methods? And what Bem has said is that he was really actually impressed with their methods and had told the researcher that, he said, you give me the data, I know how to publish. Just about five years ago in 2011, Daryl put out a paper called Feeling the Future. He had people look at a random set of words, 40 words, didn't tell them anything, just said, watch the words. After they saw the 40 words, he gave them a pop quiz. And he said, try to remember these words and try to see how many they would remember. The way this kind of study usually goes is that after the quiz, you train the subjects on a kind of memory technique. Then you have them take the test again and see how well they did the second time. You compare it to the first time and you see if the memory training had an effect. Well, after Daryl did his memory training, he stopped the test. He never gave him the second test. And what he found is that People remembered the words that they were trained on when they took the test, even though the training happened after the test occurred. You get that? What he's saying here is that if you want to do well on a test, make sure to do some studying after the test. You'll do better, even though you already took the test, because of ESP of the future. This is a form of presentiment or precognition. If by chance people get 50% on the pop quiz, Bem showed that people who were trained after the quiz got a 53%. Is that a fluke or a small effect? How impressed should we be even if it were a small effect? I always consider it kind of like baseball. And I think about the best players in baseball. If they hit the ball and get on base one out of three times, they're considered superstars. And yet, people look at parapsychology as if, well, these psychics should be able to perform every time. But if it's a skill, if it's an ability that you develop, if it's something that's subtle and, you're, and it's not 100% accurate, that doesn't mean it's not happening. That doesn't mean that it's not productive and useful. A 320 hitter in baseball isn't just a little better than the normal person the normal person would be lucky to get one hit out of a thousand at-bats against a major league pitcher. Hitting 320 in baseball is a huge effect. 
on the worst day for a 320 hitter, he would do massively better than the normal person. Showing that you have ESP in the lab is like finding someone who gets two hits out of a thousand rather than one. At that small an effect, why are parapsychologists so sure it's ESP and not something else? This, it turns out, is the key problem in science. What justifies one conclusion rather than another, given the data that you have? You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. The fundamental question in the philosophy of science, and science in general, is what should we conclude about the world from the limited observations we've made in the small corner of the world we're looking at? This is the oldest question in science. Massimo Piglucci. This is an issue that has been going on, oh gosh, since Aristotle, who is often credited to be the first scientist. But Aristotle is often criticized for not relying on experiments, as if the guy just didn't realize that experiments can be a source of scientific information. In fact, Aristotle didn't do experiments on purpose. He explains why he didn't do experiments. He says, you know, the thing is, if you go out in nature and you observe things, you're describing the way nature actually works. If you do experiments, you come up with a contrived system, which is obviously artificial. And so, yeah, you get some results, but you never know how much those results are actually applicable to nature. This objection is still valid today. That's not a counsel for not doing experiments, but it is a counsel for being careful about extrapolating from experiments under control conditions to, you know, real-life situations. In science, you want to draw a conclusion about the bigger world from your experiments. You're not just investigating the artificial world you're creating in the lab. And you want that conclusion to be objective, something everybody had to accept if they were all impartial judges of the truth. That's the holy grail. Give me a rule that everyone should follow, no matter what they're studying, no matter who they are. Whenever we have data from an experiment, everyone will come to the same conclusion because of this rule. Well, the scientific community found a rule they liked and started using it everywhere. Statistical significance. Statistically significant. Statistical significance. P-values. 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 P-value. P less than 0.05. That rule is called statistical significance P less than 0.05. Bem used it. The Gansfeld experimenters used it. If you've read any popular science telling you that red wine is good for you, that low-carb diets help you lose weight, that the super-rich aren't happier than the middle class. All of them were based on this one rule of statistical significance. So if science is the impartial testing of competing hypotheses, and science is drawing conclusions on the basis of the accepted scientific standard, parapsychology is perfectly sound science. What is this rule of statistical significance, or P less than 0.05? 
I'm going to try to explain it to you, but it's really hard to explain, even for the professionals. Let me just psych myself out here. Okay, here we go. Let's go back to my parapsychology experiment with the ESP cards. I got 3 out of 10 right. By chance, I should get 2 out of 10 right. Should I conclude that I have ESP because I did a little better than chance? Well, no one thinks so, because 10 rounds just isn't enough. You could really just be lucky and get 3 out of 10. Could I be lucky and get 4 out of 10? 5 out of 10? How about 9 out of 10? The p-value, in this context, is an attempt at determining what percentage of people would get 3 out of 10 just by luck, or even 10 out of 10 just by luck. The p-value tells you what percentage of people with no ESP at all will look like they have ESP when guessing shapes in a card game. In my own case, I might have ESP, but even if I didn't, I'd get 3 out of 10, about 40% of the time anyways. So my p-value is 40%. It's so high that we don't want a scientist to draw the conclusion that Barry has ESP. And so Barry's statistics here are not statistically significant. To be statistically significant, you have to have a low percentage or low p-value. If I got 8 out of 10, for instance, less than 1% of people who didn't have ESP would be lucky enough to get 8 out of 10, or even better. Statistical significance is the cutoff point. Whenever people do a study and they crunch the numbers and the p-value they get is below a certain number, the whole field decides, that's it. That's good enough. You found something. And in most of the human sciences, that cutoff was 5%, or p less than 0.05. If p less than 0.05, I could report that it wasn't just luck. Something else was happening. In my experiment, that would be 7 out of 10. I would get 7 out of 10 only 3% of the time if I didn't have ESP. By the rule that had been accepted in the sciences, 7 out of 10 would give some evidence that it wasn't just luck. The idea behind using the rule of statistical significance goes hand-in-hand with the view that a scientist is an impartial judge of two competing hypotheses. You want to get rid of biases that people bring to science when they're doing science. It makes things more objective if everyone had the same standard for what conclusions to draw from a particular experiment. Statistical significance tries to make it impossible for people's prior biases to affect their conclusions. It's just the specific statistics that you find in that experiment that warrant one firm conclusion for everyone. Daryl Bem's studies exhibit this perfectly. As a psychologist, it's not that weird to see if memory training helped people do better on a quiz afterwards. And when P less than 0.05, you get to say, yes, it did. So if all he did was train people 
after they took a quiz, and he still got statistical significance, by the same set of rules, he found something. And you can't deny it just because it's about ESP. But there's an alternative view. There is an additional issue with parapsychology. If psychokinesis were true, then we would have to revise physics. Because physics tells you that you can't send information back in time with your own mind. What that does is it puts the burden of proof definitely squarely on the parapsychologist, and it is a large burden of proof, right? The smaller the, the priors are, the more convincing the evidence has to be. By priors here, Piglucci just means the prior opinion you have of parapsychology. If your prior opinion says that ESP is crazy, then when you look at the small effect sizes in these experiments, it shouldn't matter to you that they're statistically significant because you're not applying one rule to draw your conclusions. You can dismiss these small effects as cases of luck or flukes or noise. Why? Because your prior opinion tells you that ESP goes against everything you know. But being lucky and fluky doesn't. Your pre-existing judgments about how wild or counterintuitive a theory is affects the standards you apply to experiments and studies. And, you know, the parapsychologist, well, that's unfair. I don't think it is unfair. That's the way science works. Scientists tend to be conservative in terms of the notions that they accept. If you're proposing a, a large departure from what we know, you better be prepared to, to back it up with a large amount of convincing evidence. Otherwise, I'm just not paying attention because it's more likely to be a pseudo-notion than, than a real one. Here's a new standard for science that we haven't heard of yet. Science ought to be conservative. New ideas, different ideas that don't fit with our prior opinions, should be subject to much higher standards. There isn't just one standard of drawing conclusions for everyone, no matter what they're studying. According to this criteria, parapsychology isn't science because, well, it's contrary to everything we know from all of the other sciences. If this sounds like a bias, it's because it is. But is it bad to have this bias? Would we miss some deep hidden truths about human beings because we were being too conservative? It'd be nice if there were a way to find out. Maybe there is. One man tried to set up a test. I'm Brian Nosek. I am the executive director at the Center for Open Science and a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. What he found next time on Hi-Fi Nation. Visit HiFiNation.org for a complete reading list and soundtrack for this episode. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. Production assistance from Shanna Andraus. Support for this episode was made possible by the Humanities Writ Large Fellowship at Duke University. Visit us at hifination.org. That's H-I-P-H-I nation.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter.